Hey, it's Damon. My guest last week, Kamina, had been awake and traveling for 24 hours in the Middle East when we chatted. She is a professor in Iraq, and things are very chaotic in that country, so for her summer break, she took time off to go to Dubai. Unfortunately, Kamina got the time zones mixed up for our connection, so it was 2 a.m. for her when we talked. But she said it was really important for her to share her adoption experience, so she made sure we connected. So to Kamina and my other international guests, thank you. And to any other adoptee around the world who wants to share their story, I'm happy to work with you on finding time that works for your and my schedule. I want to help you share your story because the adoption experiences from around the world can be educational for us all. We are a diverse community of adopted people, and we all have a story to share with the world. If you would like to share your adoption journey and your feelings about trying to locate and connect with your biological family members, please visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share, where you will complete a brief form about your journey and indicate whether you're open to sharing your whole story, you would like to keep a few parts private, or if you would like to share anonymously. We can change your name, alter your voice, or do whatever you need to feel comfortable sharing. I hope to hear from more people from around the world as adoptees add to the knowledge we share across the adoption community. We just want to be able to own our own history. We just want to be able to own our own identity so that we can stand firm on the same soil that everybody else stands on. The same soil that I stood on before I discovered that I was adopted. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and today you're going to hear from Fred. He called me from outside Milwaukee, Wisconsin, near Lake Michigan. Fred grew up an only child, loved and supported, but sometimes feeling out of place and misdirected by his parents when he tried to pursue some of his interests. As an adult, one of his relatives' slip of the tongue revealed something he had never suspected, that he was adopted. In reunion with his birth mother, Fred found a woman so deeply traumatized that she wanted to maintain her secrets after her death. Fred is now on a quest to remove adoption stigma while fighting for open records in adoption. This is Fred's journey. Fred grew up in Wauwatosa in the Milwaukee metro area. His parents were a little older and they raised him as an only child. Fred had a normal suburban upbringing where he received a lot of love from his parents, whom he said sacrificed a lot for him. Everything was just fine in Fred's existence, except for one thing. I'm a late discovery adoptee. I didn't discover I was adopted until I was 41. And even the cousin who I went to high school with, she was aware I was adopted. A lot, a lot of people were, and I think a lot more in the community were than I was really aware of. But I think as a whole, they, they were great parents. They were loving parents. They sacrificed a lot for me. I appreciate all they did for me. Mm. In all sincerity, I wish they would have told me that that would have made life a little easier. I, I always grew up feeling something was out of place. I couldn't quite figure it out. I didn't feel like I fit in. You know, as I got older and, you know, my, I'm going to say the Viking package that I got genetically you know, turned into a six foot one blonde hair with red highlights and blue eyes kind of guy. You know, I was with these people that were dark, you know, dark, short and looked very Eastern European, wow. you know, characteristics wise too. There, there were just differences that, you know, as a kid, when you're growing up, you don't really necessarily understand. And especially if you don't know you're adopted consciously, you know, all the intricacies of where characteristics come from. So my read on everything is I'm broken, you know, because I don't really fit in with these people. I'm different, you know, and so I must be broken. You know, that was, that was kind of my inner feeling. That was the, the deep seated 
kind of driver, you know, in, in how I grew up. But when I was 18, as once I finished high school, my parents did suggest I go away to school. So I did go up to UW Stout, which was about five hours away, six hours away from home. And it was interesting because up there, I went from basically a, a, a low C student. I had terrible grades in high school to a straight A student. You wow. know, I think once I got out of the environment, even though they loved me, they, they did the best they could. Adoptees are hard to begin with. You know? And then if you're kind of playing the let's pretend we're not adopted game, I think it adds an extra layer of complexity that posed difficulties both for them and for me. Yeah. Let me take you back for a moment because you hit on some things that I'd like to hear a little more about. There's the notion that you felt broken, you said. You didn't fit the mold of what should have come out of these two people. And you look different. And it sounded like you said there were also sort of characteristic differences, too. Can you tell me a little bit about those characteristic differences? Sure. And and the way I'm going to kind of compare it, you know, and I'm, I'm going to give you a little more information. I'm a reti- uh, retired high school teacher. I taught for about 20 years, high school and middle school. And going through that training really does kind of throw you into the weighing heavy on nurture side. You know, that nature's component, but nurture is really how you're going to make a person be a person. And I think between teaching and then my experience as a late discovery adoptee, I pretty much flipped the boat on it where I'm going to say today, I believe it's probably about 80% nature and maybe 10, maybe 5% nurture that really impacts it. And my best example always is, you know, it's interesting. I, I could never turn a Pekingese into a pit bull, but I can teach them both to sit. That is, there's basic characteristics that are ingrained that you're not going to really change, you know, and those have to do with temperament. They have to do with interest. You know, as a kid, I was, I was very interested. I I was in choir. I, you know, wanted to be in plays and my parents thought that was not good. They, they wanted me in sports and they wanted me in competitive swimming. And, you know, they, they pulled me out of stuff to get me more aligned with what they, you know, thought I should be, you know, and, I'm just going to say it, it created a disconnect, you know, for me, not just with them, but a disconnect within myself. And it's not just my parents. You've got to keep in mind, they come from two families too, you know, so I'm interfacing with all their families. I'm interfacing with cousins, you know, I'm interfacing with aunts, uncles, grandparents, and and all these people just look and seem different than me. So, you know, I'm a kid. What what do you think? I'm broken. I'm, I, I'm, some, I'm a defect, you know, something's wrong with me. You know, and then that's, that's kind of say, builds on itself, unfortunately. Yeah. And so when I did discover it, you know, honestly, at that moment, nothing made sense. But at the same time, it all made sense. It, it was like, oh, that explains a lot. Well, in the discovery, sure. But before we get there, I just want to continue sure. to push a little bit. Let's stay in your yeah. young years. You're being pulled out of stuff that you're interested in. And yes. it must have really sucked to be like, man, I love this. And they're like, no, you need to go do that. And just constantly redirecting your energy into things that you weren't even interested in. Like, what did, how did that make you feel? Well, I, I think as a kid, it, what it did is it kind of shut me down in regards. You know, I, I think instead of, you know, I, I would try at things, you know, that they wanted me to do. And then, you know, I, I don't mean to make it out like they didn't let me do anything I wanted to do. But if there was a conflict and, you know, I, I'm going back to one particular situation where I was in middle school and I was in the competitive swim club at that point already and had an important meet. And at the same time, I had been slotted to do a part of a trio for a choir concert. And I was really into the choir concert and I wanted to miss the meet and my parents wouldn't let me, you know, they just said, no, you know, you got to set your priorities and we're going to help you with that, you know, and, and they did, you know, and so I, I ended up getting pulled out of the, the choir trio and I swam, but I, I didn't exactly do very well. You know, and I think I shut down in many regards because I, I couldn't figure it out. You know, to me, they were right, you know you're right. I should be interested in this because that's what everybody around me is doing. But I want to do this instead. And why is that? You know, and that's why I kind of go back to that Pekingese and Pitbull thing. You know, they're both dogs, but man, you couldn't talk about the two different breeds, you know, and they have different characteristics. There's they actually, if you train them some, you know, 
a pit bull's a, a great family dog, but you can train it to be a good guard dog too. A Pekingese, not so much, you know. Um, mm-hmm. you know they just have different, in addition to looking different, size difference, they have different characteristics that are going to lead them down different paths. Yeah, and uh, capabilities that, you know, too. Exactly. Right. If your if your propensity is for theater, singing, and say science or something, and you're constantly being pushed towards swimming, basketball, and you know lacrosse, your your propensity to take to those things is diminished because you've been removed from your core skill set and placed into something that people assume you should be able to do. You've mentioned more than once, sort of this shutting down. You alluded to it in the transition to college where you went from being a C student, it sounded like in high school, to excelling while you were away at college, a place where you can explore your independence and find yourself and and try new things. Tell me what that shutting down was like. What do you mean when you say I shut down? You know, to me that what I'm trying to express is that I, I withdrew. You know, I instead of putting my energy into excelling at something, I would just go through the motions to appease and satisfy those around me. You know, it, it really wasn't a drive. You know, I've, I've, as I've become an adult, you know, I've, I've gradually become more and more mission driven. That is, I find that I can get a lot done. I can accomplish a lot if, if I believe in it and I push myself in it and I believe I'm experiencing success in it. You know, if, if I'm not, mission driven in something can i do it yeah I'll, I'll do it through brute discipline of making myself go through the steps but i will say in an observation i won't accomplish half as much as if i'm driven by something i truly believe in in my core fred was careful not to be overly heavy-handed with his description of his parents forcing him to do different activities they were redirecting his energy he described them as supportive and nurturing, and they showed up for his school events. Fred's parents were focused on providing him with a good life. He got involved in Boy Scouts, and his father went along on campouts with the troop. And his mom was also supportive in her maternal ways. As Fred was sharing more about his childhood, he revealed something interesting about his parents. They entered adoption from their perspective with their own baggage and trauma you know, and how they grew up, you know, and, and I know the backstories. My dad came from a split family. His parents were both immigrants from Romania, and they married in the 20s, and in the 30s, they divorced. Obviously, it was during the Depression, and that didn't go so well. So my father, along with his brothers and sister, ended up in the county orphanage for a few years, and eventually, he was the youngest. His sister got old enough to get out, and then she basically rescued the rest of them and brought them into her family and helped them get on their feet. So he came from that background, which I'm going to say, it tainted him. It it traumatized him. It it affected him, you know, and so I think that drove a lot of his decision-making in regard to my not knowing. Theoretically, the driver of why I wasn't told I was adopted was because he didn't want to see me have to live with the baggage of being an orphan that he experienced as a kid, mm-hmm. you know, and th- they had passed away by the time I found out. So I have no way of really knowing if that's correct. His sister told me that, you know, wow. but I believe it, honestly, based on what I know of him, he was, a, he was a decent guy. He was a nice guy. I could see him having that compassion, you know, and believing that that was the best thing to do. My mom was also, she, she was from a family where her mother died when she was very young. Her father remarried, subsequently had a family. It was kind of a classic Cinderella stepdaughter story you know didn't really get along with her mother and it was kind of a a difficult situation too and so it's interesting to see you know those two people come together and they did they provided a good home for me i'm I'm grateful for what they did again i wish they would have told me it would have made life easier i would have it would have given me a context to understand why i was different yeah i i can see that and what's also interesting about what you're sharing is that you come from a different era than the one I was born in. I was born in 72 and there was a a little bit more sort of tell adoptees that they're adopted in the era that my parents adopted me in versus yours. 
I could see that era not necessarily having that level of advice for an adoptive parent because a lot more of society thought that babies were a blank slate, right? So it's possible that they were not given the guidance to share it with you either. And then layer on their own family experiences of orphanages and Cinderella stories of hating evil stepmother kind of things. Like yeah. I could see how you throw all that in the pot and mix it around, how they didn't end up telling you, I'm, I'm with you. I wish that they had too, but I can see how they got to that space of not sharing it. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's, you know, and obviously anybody that finds themselves adopted, there there has to be, you know, some dysfunction in the original relationship that got them to be in place of being adopted. So you've got on top of the mix of these two people that are doing the best they can, trying to figure out how to carve a family when they really can't have their own offspring, you know, and then you throw into it what we know about adoptees today, you know, relinquished babies who probably have some kind of a birth trauma that is unresolved. And, you know, it's just, it, it's a sad dynamic. And, you mm-hmm. know, I think it, it makes it difficult for all parties. You know, part of my biggest regret in my parents not telling me is that I never was able to bring resolution to that with them. You know, I mean, it, I'll say when I discovered it, it was hard and I went through an angry phase you know, eventually uh, with a fair amount of counseling, <laughs> unfortunately, some bad turns. I, I turned that turned that around, learned how to look at it a little differently and recognize. And I'm going to say I'm a parent of three grown children who, in retrospect, you know what? I made a lot of mistakes mm-hmm. and I hope they can find forgiveness for those mistakes. Yeah. And, and likewise, you know, if I can't if I can't forgive my parents for maybe some mistakes they made, How can I expect my kids to forgive me for some mistakes I probably made? When he arrived at college, Fred began to spread his wings, taking up interests in speech, storytelling, and performance that he would later discover were threads in his biological family. His birth grandmother's brother and sister are inducted into the Grand Old Opry Hall of Fame for their storytelling through country western singing. Fred also dove into physical fitness and became a born-again Christian, cleaning up his act from his days of drinking as a young teenager in high school. With renewed focus on himself, Fred's grades rose dramatically and he became an A student in college. But he found himself exploring a lot. While he graduated with a business degree, he had meandered through a major in art and thought about majoring in economics. Fred went on to achieve a master's degree in business, spent several years in healthcare but decided he missed his calling and went back to school for a master's degree in architecture. Fred practiced architecture for a few years. Then he and his wife started a family. And while his wife got herself established in teaching, Fred returned to healthcare management consulting. Then he got a teaching license and started teaching high school. He characterized himself as meandering from thing to thing throughout his life. Yeah. And and what I'm going to attribute a lot of that to was I couldn't find who I was. I was constantly trying to change relationships, places, careers, everything, just trying to figure out what wasn't fitting right in my life. Because once I discovered at 41, I'd only been teaching two years, but then I stayed in the same job for 20 years. Fred and his wife at the time met and got married in Milwaukee. Then, they lived in the twin cities of Minneapolis-St. Paul for about 10 years. Fred and his now ex-wife also had their kids, but they lived too far from either of their families up there, so they were constantly traveling to see people on holidays, and it got to be too much. They moved back to southeastern Wisconsin, where Fred had family. At the time of their move, Fred's parents had already passed away. With the money his mother had left him, Fred bought a new home and the family settled in. They moved with the expectation that their kids would get to connect with the extended family. Fred would get to see his relatives more and they would all engage with the family members in the area. In the year 2000, their second year in town, Fred's twin uncles, Bob and Rich, had a huge 60th birthday party at a restaurant in Milwaukee. We got down here and all of a sudden we weren't invited to anything, you know. Nobody was knocking on our door. Nobody was telling us about holiday gatherings. They were getting together on their own, but 
you know, it was like they, they kind of closed the door on me a bit. And in retrospect, I think they, they didn't know how to handle a situation once my mother passed away. You know, what do we do with this guy? I mean, he's, are we supposed to really still carry him through, you know, and pretend that he's really our cousin and he's not our cousin? You know, I mean, I think it was, it was a debacle on there. So I went to this, this party and, uh, you know, the, all my cousins, my uncles and everybody was there, aunts and extended family and uh, an elderly aunt. She mentioned to my now ex-wife, she just wanted her to be aware that she's known me since the day they adopted me. And uh, I came back to the table from getting the family beverages. And when my wife told me that at the time, I just fractured. I fell apart. I went and found her. She confirmed. And it, it was verified. <laughs> you know, it was like, whoa, that's, it all made sense, yet none of it made sense. The floor literally fell out from under my feet. Didn't get, I didn't get a floor under my feet for about four months until I got the name of a birth mother. So it was crazy. Oh, my gosh. So you're at a party with hundreds of people. Yep. And your wife is sitting with your, is it an aunt or like a grandmother figure? Uh, like she's older. She, she was with my three kids and my aunt had come over and talked to her mm-hmm. and then went to where she was sitting. So after my wife told me that, I, I just, I got to go talk to her, you know, and I went and I found her and I, you know, asked her and, and I felt bad. She was well into her eighties at the time. And I thought I was going to give her a coronary. You know, she, she just had this look of astonishment. Oh my God. I didn't know you didn't know. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have, you know, your parents didn't, uh, you know, and it, it turned into kind of a mess, you know, and unfortunately at that point in time, I'm going to say I hijacked the party. The, that party no longer was about my twin uncles turning 60. That party then became about Fred's coming out of the adoption closet. And what does that mean? What do you, how, why well, did you take over the party? What does that mean? I, I didn't try to take over the party, but, you know, immediately my first reaction was, I have to get out of here. I just have to get out of here. So I, I gathered my kids, my wife, you know, I had a number of them like, kind of running after me as I'm scooting everybody out into the minivan. I, you know, as I'm looking, I'm seeing people just come out of this this restaurant, you know, kind of like they're trying to find me, find out what happened to me. You know, I think they cared. I think they were concerned. They didn't know what to do, but it was a situation where, you know, they, they knew, they all knew, everybody knew, everybody, I didn't know, I was the one that didn't know, you know, it was like the emperor's new clothes, you know, I was naked, everybody there was looking at a naked guy, and they all knew I was naked my whole life, you know, and I didn't. That is so crazy, oh my gosh, I'm sorry you had to find out that way, that's really terrible, and I know she didn't mean to hurt you, but just to have something as massive as that come out as you've termed it, a slip of the tongue, you want something like that to be an intentional delivery, not an accidental discovery. Yeah, maybe, a little more private. maybe a little more private would have been helpful. Certainly, <laughs> yeah. A one on one, maybe even a five on one, I could have dealt with better than a 200 on one. You know, that was kind of crazy. Now, what, what I'm going to say too is that was the first swing of the wrecking ball. That was, that was what unearthed my foundation. That party was on a Saturday night. When Fred got his family home, he felt a burning desire to get more information. He got in his vehicle and drove around Milwaukee and knocked on doors of people he thought might have more information about his adoption. Most people didn't have much to share, and many were surprised Fred didn't know he was adopted before that night. Others were shocked that he had found out that night. The next day, Sunday, Fred crashed, withdrew, and tried to process everything. He walked the beach along Lake Michigan for nearly 10 miles, he thinks, all night until just before he had to go to school to teach on Monday morning. I just, I I walked the beach and I walked, you know, the best that I can fear, I walked about 10 miles on the beach one way, you know, and then suddenly had to turn around. I got home at eight in the morning, you know, just before I had to go teach high school, which I did that day. But it, it, it was a crazy time. You got home at eight in the morning? Yeah. Wow, you were out all night. Yeah, just walking, crying, sobbing. I, I basically fall apart. I had two dogs with me, and then I then I kind of you know kind of come back together, you know. And I'm gonna say, Damon, it was it was a magical night. Lake Michigan, where I live, the sand is has a certain consistency that when you walk on it, it barks. It just kind of barks, and and so like I, I had this barking just kind of going nonstop, and. The northern lights came out that night, and then it had also rained earlier, so there were 
depressions in the sand with water in them that all of a sudden started these misty sculpture type things were emerging as the, the northern lights were like just going nuts as I'm just walking and trying to process, you know. And what I'm going to say is that processing wasn't just about me being adopted. It was thinking about every relationship I had growing up and what the implications of who knew and who didn't know and, and, and what that meant to me, what it meant to them. What did it mean that they, they harbored that secret for so long? Why didn't my parents tell me? Why did I find out now? You know, I mean, it was a rabbit hole that I just, I couldn't stop going down. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, because as you've said, they did, died before this discovery. So you can't even say, I think I'm going to call them tomorrow. They're, no, you can't no, talk they're, to they're, them. Yeah, I talked to them that night. I, I did. I talked to them a lot that night, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, I, I would say they answered me, you know. In what way? What did you, what answer did you get? I, I saw them sad. I felt they were sad. They were sad that it shook out the way it did. So, you know, I don't know that I got an answer of why they did what they did. And that, that took years to kind of come to terms with mm-hmm. in itself. Monday morning, Fred went to school to teach with the knowledge that he's an adoptee. He was new to our community, so he called himself naive back then. When he called the state of Wisconsin, they confirmed he was adopted. He said the next questions out of his mouth were, Who am I? Where did I come from? Was I beamed down from Mars? I mean, what is my story? Who am I? And the state spent the better part of an hour educating me that I, as an adopted person, don't have a right to that information. That prior to that, as a non-adopted person, I, I enjoyed the pleasure of understanding my factual birth information. But as an adopted person, I had a different set of laws, a different set of rules that I lived under. And I just needed to accept that. Wow. And I'm going to say that was the second swing of the wrecking ball. Because when I look at, you know, and I'm going to say you, you know, when I look at other adoptees, and I've come to terms with that. I have a lot in common with adoptees and that many of the things that drive adoptees drive me too. And, but at the same time, I'm going to say that, you know, I didn't grow up developing the ego that was needed to shield me from the reality of what I fell into. And so the state took it upon them to make sure that I understood exactly where I belonged, who I was and what questions I was allowed to ask. And I'm going to say that that's a part that I look at most adoptees and I think you don't understand what it feels like to believe you're on equal footing with everybody else around you because you don't operate under different laws. Mm. And that's, that's become the crux of what has driven my mission is that needs to change. Yeah. Wow. Because I'm going to say even even when I went into reunion, because the process in Wisconsin at the time was, first of all, I had to apply for my redacted birth information. And so once I did that, I paid money. Then the state went. They got a hold of my file from Wisconsin Lutheran Social Services. Somebody at the state read my entire story. That is, they learned who I was. And then they carefully redacted anything that would allow me to understand who I was. So this other person at the state is allowed to know my story, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. That 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 was something I had a hard time wrapping my head around. Yeah, this is really, really fascinating. I'm hearing you talk about this freedom of information that you had yeah. as a non-adoptee. You could have asked the state anything, shown them some identification and said, yep, that's me. Give me everything. But as an adopted person, you're the same guy, same ID to be presented. But if you want to get any of that information whatsoever, as you've said, you live under a different set of laws than you did just before the slip of the tongue. Like that's all that it took for you to no longer be able to access stuff about yourself, stuff that you didn't even know wasn't there, admittedly, but still just... If I had walked in as Fred, I would have been just fine asking about that guy. But now I'm looking for Fred, who used to be known as someone else, and all doors close. Crazy. It is crazy. Once Fred had the redacted file, he was allowed to write a letter to his birth mother explaining who he was and why he was reaching out. 
The state took that letter, found his birth mother, explained her rights to her that she could accept Fred's request for his original birth certificate, or OBC, and it would be released to him, or she had the right to decline. If she declined his first attempt, five years later, Fred could write her another letter and she would be at another decision point with the same rights. Except the second time, if the woman declined his request to access his OBC, the issue was terminated, the case was closed, and Fred would not be allowed to pursue discovery of his original identity through the state anymore until the woman passed away. But the state isn't going to call and say, hey, your birth mother just passed away, and without knowing her identity, there was no way to keep tabs on her life, nor her death. Now, I'm also going to say, take the read on her side of it. She in 58 went through some horrific things. Mm-hmm. She, she had to hide behind couches, you know, people came over. As soon as she got started showing too much, she got shipped off to Milwaukee. She was from a small town where she was put in a work wage home until she gave birth. And then she, her baby was taken from her. Mm-hmm. And then she was back to her community and told to forget about this ever happened. Just pretend it never happened. And don't talk about it because it'll just bring shame to your family. You know, that woman was scarred for life, you know, and she agreed to let me find out who I was. She did also tell me after we met, she goes, you know, I'm so glad you didn't, you didn't find out even five years earlier because my husband was alive and I would never have let you find out who I was while he was alive. He didn't know I had a baby out of wedlock. Wow. And, you know, I mean, I look at that and our entire relationship that we had after that, she was a very kind, gracious woman. She was trying to do the best she could. At the same time, I'm going to say she she couldn't get away from that blanket of shame that had been put on her. So if we went out to eat, because don't forget at this point, I have three kids. Those are her grandkids. Oh my God. She, she would die for those. You know, she, she wanted to find out more about them. She wanted, she wanted to love them, but at the same time she was torn. How does she deal with that? So we'd go, we'd meet in restaurants, but I'd have to come in one door. She, she would have to come in another. When she passed away, she explicit instructions. I could not go to the funeral. You know, that's, that's what needs to change. You know, I mean, and, and when I think about it, the message from the laws themselves basically reinforced her shame. Instead of saying, honey, let, let, let's, let's heal. Let's find a path to help you get away from all these bad feelings that have caged you for your entire life. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Instead, we, the system, were wrong in the past. And let's yeah. see if we can help you to heal to get past what we put you through, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like you did reunite. Tell me, how did it come to pass that you ended up connecting with her and actually meeting her in person? Well, you know, I I wrote a good letter. (laughs) (laughs) I'll even say, though, that, you know, the the caseworker who, you know, again, I, I don't hate the caseworkers at the state. You know, I mean, they're doing the job that's described in law that they have to do, you know, and, and she coached me a bit on it. And she even said, she said, you know, what you want to do, what I've seen as far as, first of all, keep in mind, your letter is only one part of the whole puzzle for her. You know, she's got other things. She might have a husband that doesn't know, and she doesn't want that to come out, you know, and if that's the case, you're just out of luck. It's too bad. You know, you'll just have to go on through life without an identity, I guess, you know, but she, she also said, you know, Give her bits and pieces, but don't tell her too much. Make her curious. Make her, you know, basically bait her with a, a worm on the hook, but make sure she bites, you know. Mm. And so I told her I had three kids, but I didn't tell her much about them, you know. And and I think as a whole, it, it worked. Now, on the other hand, she did say, you know, there was, you know, every time your birthday came and went, I didn't even know if you were alive. You know, I wanted to know. I'm, You know, that's what made me disclose at this point. And she made me promise that I wouldn't tell. So even in my book, all, her name's masked. My, my half-siblings are masked on her side. You know, I, I stuck to my word, but I'll say that that was a tough relationship, you know, just having to live as the bastard in the closet, you know, that can't come out and can't be seen in the light of day, you know. For their first meeting, Fred went to his birth mother's house about 90 minutes from his. He said he was super nervous and he was worried he was going to scare his birth mother away because he had a lot of questions, including a few about his birth father. So I wanted to engage. I didn't know how I felt about the relationship itself. You know, did, 
I buried my mother. I, I loved my mother that I buried. I, I didn't know that I wanted another mother. You know, I mean, it was crazy. It was, it was hard to, for me to wrap my head around. She was very gracious. She was very welcoming. She looked at me and she went, you look just like him. And, you know, that relationship didn't end well. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. That's, that's one of the big challenges for adoptees coming back is we resurrect the entire situation from yeah. whence we were conceived and something as what you can hope to be true. Like I hope I look like one of them or both can also work as you've said to your detriment. This is a relationship yeah. that didn't end well. And you look just like that guy. And now he's yeah. standing here before me with you and that situation. It's a lot. Yeah. I'm 23 years into it, you know, since I discovered. So I've gone through a lot of reunions. I've had, I went from being an only child to I have six half siblings. Two of them were dead before I even found out. One of them has said, since died. But I, I've had some great reunions, especially there's an uncle, my biological father's half-brother. My biological father passed away before I even discovered I was adopted which I, I think that actually made me dive deeper into finding out who he was. You yeah. know, that's, that's what a lot of my book is about, you know, trying to unearth that family, find out who that is. So I'm, I'm trying to discover that side of me. So, but, so let's go back to the reunion. So she told you that you looked like him, but how was your actually reunion experience? Did, did you guys hug? Were there tears? Was it laughter? We, we hugged. There weren't tears. I, I think we laughed periodically. Uh, I, I don't know that we ever, you know, in our best efforts, you know, and I'm going to say, again, similar to what I described with my parents, both my biological mother and myself came at this situation with some deep-seated trauma that needed resolution. Mm -hmm. And I don't think those relationships honestly, are the place that that's necessarily going to happen. The, um, the healing? Yeah, the healing. I think, I think they, the, the, the discovery of who the people are helps in the healing. Understanding the context helps in the healing. You don't, you don't have a relationship at that first meeting. You, you need to develop a relationship. And that would be the one thing I would say to any adoptee going into reunion is understand there is no relationship there. That's what you're going to build. And if you give it time and put a lot of energy into it, maybe you can build a good one. But there's no guarantees. And probably there's going to be struggles. Yeah, that's a really good point. There is no relationship going in. It's only... No the connection that you've established. It's not a relationship. Yeah. Every relationship takes time and, and energy. Yes. Fred's birth mother gave him the name of what he called his AF, or alleged father. He pointed out that back in 2000, there were no DNA databases to verify any biological interconnectedness, so Fred was basically taking the woman's word for the truth as to who his birth father was. In later years, Fred did do 23andMe and Ancestry DNA, and has since confirmed his birth mother's story to be true. She did accurately identify his birth father. I wondered what Fred had learned about the situation surrounding his conception. They were going out for, I think, a considerable amount of time. She was a teacher in the community. I think she taught fourth grade. He was a construction worker working on a school, and I think they went out for a number of months. What gets really interesting, and I'm, I'm going to spoil the epilogue of my book here, but <laughs> what I found out, okay, so I, as I went through the, the adoption journey, I, I remained the old, oldest child, which is often the case for adoptees. They're often the oldest of both families that they, they interface with or the single family. They, not all the time, but often. And that was true until about two years ago when all of a sudden I got an email out of the Ancestry database from a woman who indicated she was puzzled because we were like first cousins and were really closely, a lot of centimorgans that were all tied together and she didn't know who I was. Her only clue was that her father was adopted and that he never pursued finding out his identity. So as I took that piece and started boiling it down and looked at who he was related to, 
or who looked at who Janeta was related to and who she was related to on my father's side and how close they were. It turns out her father was my half brother, that my biological father actually had another baby that was given up for adoption seven months before I was born. Wow. So as meaningful as that relationship was, I, I think he, he was very active in the late 50s. Put it that way. There could be more out there. I have no idea. Oh, that's really fascinating. Wow. So how did your relationship with your birth mother turn out? She called the shots on the front end because I indicated in my letter to her that I, I was willing to live with whatever level of confidentiality she needed because I wanted to find out. I, I was moted to find out and I lived by my word. And so she she needed to keep me a secret, you know, from a lot of people. She did let me meet my half sister and my half brother that were still living. My half brother didn't take the news of me well. It took him a while to kind of adapt to that. We did have, I think, two meetings. I got to know him a little bit, not real well, but then he did pass away. My half-sister I had a relationship with that went through many different levels of intensity, and it was a hard relationship. I still have a relationship with her, but it's kind of distant at this point. My mother, I'm going to say, my birth mother, it, it eventually ate at me that I was in this relationship that I couldn't be acknowledged. And it created problems on my end. And whereas I'd say we continued to engage, I think it reinforced the shameful side of her, in which then also reinforced the perceived rejection on my part. And so it was a difficult relationship. It was, it was hard. Mm-hmm. We both tried. We were kind to each other. We were, you know, I, I think she told me as much as she could. She, she tried to love me the best she could, but I, I think. There were a lot of barriers there. It was difficult. After decades of deeply entrenched barriers that his birth mother had put up over the 41 years of Fred's life, it was hard to make a meaningful relationship with her. Like he said earlier, the secrecy of his existence was like being a bastard in the closet. I wanted Fred to share what it was like when he found out his birth mother had passed away and how he felt knowing he was specifically banned from attending her funeral. I'm a full disclosure kind of guy. So I'm going to tell you in all sincerity, Damon, I, over the the course of six to seven years following my discovery, didn't deal with it as well as I should have or as well as I could have and developed. I'm going to say I took a drinking problem and accelerated it to a point of dependency as a result of bad things on my end and things I regret deeply. I, was without a license for about a year. Mm. And unfortunately, that was the year where she was going downhill. So I wasn't able to see her as much as I would have liked to. She was in a long-term care facility at the very end. And uh, when I did get my license, I again, I wanted to go and visit her. And I did go visit her once, but she was fairly sedated. I don't think she even knew that I was there at that time. And then I... A couple weeks later, actually it was probably about three weeks later, I called the facility again and they they deferred telling me anything. So then I did an obit search on her and discovered that she had passed away. Hmm. I'm sure yeah, I had seen her. So it was about three weeks. And so I called my half sister at that point and she was the one that told me she said she she did not want you to know that when she died, when she told me not to tell you because she was afraid you'd come to the funeral and people would put the pieces together. Wow. She wanted to take her secret all the way through to finality, which means not only as long as she was alive, but as long as you're alive. That's really rough. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, again, you know, what I'm going to say is it it hit hard on me, and I'm sober 15 years now. So I, I worked around that one, you know, came to terms with it. But at the same time, I'm going to say that as, as I reflect and as I look back, you know, I, I see that that system of shame and secrecy that she fell under, that was society's method of birth control at the time. 
you know, you go back then, there really wasn't a lot of really good birth control methods in place. So adoption, you know, and there was no abortion. So adoption really was, I, I was considered baby scoop and there were a lot of adoptions going on in the late fifties, early sixties, mm. you know, throughout the fifties. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of women out there that lived through that, you know, it's interesting because I've met a lot of birth mothers and a lot of them do not want to be protected from their, they want to know what happened. They, they yeah. want to know where those babies went, you know, what those lives were, were they good lives? They're, they're hoping they had good lives. They, they didn't just go away and forget about it and start a new life. And I'm going to say my birth mother didn't either, you know, it plagued her and she, she struggled with it for most of her life, you know, and mm-hmm. that's, it shouldn't be. That's why to me, it's, it's an imperative that we adoptees, birth mothers, birth parents, adopted parents all need to work to, to remove that shame from the system. Some of it's legal, some of it's just social stigma, but that needs to be our mission. We need to do that. I agree. I agree. My final question for you, Fred, how are you doing now? You've been through a lot. You've discovered late that you were an adoptee. It took the earth out from under you. I mean, you walked all night contemplating why, who, everything. You found your birth mother and were forced to remain a secret and never got to meet your birth father and never got to ask your adoptive parents, like, what's up? Why? How, how are you doing now? You've been through a lot. You know, it, it's interesting because, it, you know, you know, I, I disclosed to you that I came face to face with dependency, alcohol dependency and drug dependency. And the first step was sobering up. You know, I mean, I fell into a hole. And what I'll say, the the sobering up and going through recovery and learning tools to help cope, to help manage stress better than drink, you know, all those things, things like gratitude lists, finding spiritual growth, you know, coming to terms with the higher higher power, leading on to reestablishing a faith in God and my own personal walk with, you know, as a Christian, you know, which today I'm I'm found, you know, I'm firm in. Those were all things that helped me heal. And what I would say, the final pieces of that really, you know, you're aware that I wrote a book, Forbidden Roots, the writing of the book, getting it out there. And what I found, it was kind of interesting because I'm going to say it's not even so much the book itself, but the book is a platform on which I can stand. I I also sell gluten-free breads and cookies at farmer's markets. Mm. And I sell my book side by side with the breads. And I can't tell you how many discussions I engage with with people, just educating them in terms of what the reality for adoptees is that, you know, in, in Wisconsin, there are two laws that are coming up that it's important. And I have a sheet that I hand them and say, write your assemblyman, write your senator, tell them, you know, that adoptees should just have the same right as everybody else, the vital statistics. We're not entitled to a relationship, and that's not what we're after. We just want to be able to own our own history. We just want to be able to own our own identity so that we can stand firm on the same soil that everybody else stands on, the same soil that I stood on before I discovered that I was adopted. You know, And that's where we get a little into the history, that discovering I had a number of relatives that fought in the Civil War, fought in the Revolutionary War, fought for a lot of wars that really tried to establish, you know, that all men are created equal, that we should have a, a footing, that we shouldn't be discriminated upon. You know, that all helped. So, uh, you know, in the end, writing the book was good, but I'm going to say the discussions that have ensued since then, meeting the adoption community, the adoptees has just been phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, there are some such as yourself, there are outstanding people out there that have been through a lot, that have, you know, gone through the butter churn and have taken that and are are now pushing it forward into a positive experience to help create change that needs to be. That's really well said. Really, really well said. And it's interesting that you sort of give the metaphor of soil and the soil you stand on and the forbidden roots. And it's interesting, too, to reflect on your story that you grew up with an immigrant's understanding of America based on your parents' history and their family's history coming to America. And you end up discovering that you've got deep roots in America based on your biological family's connections to historical events. And this is exactly what you were just saying, the notion that we should be able to discover our own 
history, both personal as it relates to our biological mother and father, and like, how am I connected to the rest of this world? And and it's fascinating that you put that metaphor together because it does in fact highlight the differences in what it's like to be adopted versus what it's like to be biologically born into a family and know all of that stuff. So thank you for that. Yeah. And, and I'm going to say you, you nailed the right on the head, you know, your podcast, who am I really? I mean, that's what it's about, you know, and that's to me, my mission is just making sure we're given the tools to put that together. Who am I really? Yeah, You know, that's right. That's what I want to know. Very good. The book is called Forbidden Roots. Fred, thank you so much for being here with me, man. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad to hear that you are on this journey of recovery and sobriety and late discovery, adoptee activism. And we're glad to have you, man. Thank you very much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for your work. You you do some awesome service work, man. Thank I appreciate you. it. My pleasure, brother. All right. You take care. All the best to you. Okay. All right. Thank you. See you, Fred. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's me. Fred grew up in a great family, but feeling like he just didn't fit, which he said left him feeling like he was broken. I cannot even imagine how it felt for his elderly relative's slip of the tongue to reveal to Fred he was adopted in the middle of a 60th birthday party. Having his adoption revealed so publicly felt like the earth had fallen out from under him. In reunion, Fred said he felt like his relationship with his birth mother had barriers in it that she had carried for 41 years. And it was really sad to hear that even on her deathbed, she wanted to maintain her secret through the end of her life. But Fred has found his voice in the adoptee community, shining a light on the opportunity for legislative changes to allow access to original birth certificates in Wisconsin and supporting birth mothers in relieving any shame that they might feel from the placement decision they made so long ago. Fred's book is called Forbidden Roots. I hope you'll add his story to your reading list. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you found something in Fred's journey that inspired you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn. Who am I really? <laughs>